welcome back to another episode of the True Crime Date Podcast with your host, Amanda and Angel Alvarado. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is episode three. Uh, We are very, very happy to be here and excited to share some more cases with you, crimes and how they've been solved or unsolved. Yeah, Uh, three episodes doesn't sound like a lot, but that's three hours or close to three hours of us just being able to sit and talk to each other without any distractions or little boy running around or job calling or anything else so it's nice yeah it's been a welcome distraction and also giving us something to look forward to at the end of the week you know something that we both enjoy and we want to bring that joy to everyone who's been listening and if you have been listening and following everything, we're really happy that you stumbled upon us, and hopefully you keep listening. Make sure your volume is lowered so that your coworker next to you in the cubicle is not hearing what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, if you do, if you do find yourself listening at work, uh, hopefully this is helping you get through the day. <laughs> uh, I know I sit in my desk and I listen to. Tons of podcasts every day. My favorite murder, The Murder Squad, Crime Junkie, Vanished. I listen to all these podcasts and I'm like, if anyone could hear me, like if I accidentally dropped my headphones, they would be in shock of some of the stuff that I'm listening to while I'm sitting there doing accounting work. Yeah, it's it's funny when you listen to certain things out of context and you just hear, so the murder happened. <laughs> like, People are looking at like, well, what's going on over there? Or the body was found. <laughs> so, you know, we just are so happy uh, to have the people who have listened. We've been looking at the uh, the Spotify and we've been looking at the Anchor and we've gotten a ton of comments. We've gotten a ton of people on Instagram and we just want to thank everyone for hanging out with us and listening to our stories. And again, if you have any cases or anything that you want us to talk about or something that you want us to research feel free send us something send us anything you like or even yes. just a, a comment just to see how we're doing hopefully yeah. we're not the you know we're not the, we're new at this so you know we want to be able to bring these stories to you and you know have some fun doing it yeah and you can email that at true crime date podcast at gmail.com or you can dm us on our instagram at true crime date podcast we have already had some interesting cases come across uh with some personal connections that we are working on and um found some interesting things that i think coming soon will be brought up and really kind of delve into another possible serial killer locally yeah that's uh <laughs> that's always interesting um when you look in your own backyard and i think my favorite murder podcast and they have the hometown stories and yes. i think that's always fun yeah you know to kind of hear certain things because i remember there was the one that we talked about where their next door neighbor was btk yeah. like you know and it's like yeah. Not to scare anyone. Surprise, surprise. He hated dogs. (laughs) You know, not to scare anyone, but like, not to like start getting suspicious of your neighbors, but. No, always be suspicious (laughs) of your neighbors. (laughs) But it's, it's, it's just interesting to me that, that people like that can blend into society. I know it's a psychological thing. They're, they're sociopaths and they are able to blend in, but to blend into the point where 
you can hide something like that about yeah. yourself from people who are close to you. Like yeah. sometimes even family members don't even know what's going on around you or what you're doing in your quote unquote side job. Yeah. You know, and it was interesting. I was at work the other day and it was like we were talking about all the serial killers and it was like, yeah, they, they all did some of their work in a certain era and my coworker was like, why do you make it sound like they punch a clock? And they're like, they're like, but they kind of do. Like it's, they're very meticulous. Yeah. They're very organized. And for them, for these evil, evil people, it is work. It's a job. Yeah. It's a full-time job. Yeah. Look at a serial killer like Israel Keys, where I think I've told you about him before. He literally had kill buckets across the country. He would bury buckets with killing supplies, supplies to get rid of bodies and, and things like that. And he would bury them like in random, not random to him, but random areas in wooded areas or parks that he can have easy access to and just go pick it up. And it's like, well, today I'm in New York and I'm going to kill somebody. And today I'm in Florida and I'm going to kill somebody. And just to think that somebody plans out that well, that to the point that he was caught and people still don't know how many kill barrels and buckets he had, but some have been continued to be found. Wow. I mean, there's even the uh, the Iceman, who was the hitman serial killer for the Mafia. Like, he was so meticulous in his planning that he even bought a ice cream truck <laughs> to store the body so that he can dispose of them later on because the frozen body uh, was a lot harder to identify and the frozen body was a lot harder to find out what and how and when they were killed. So just the planning process of these people is really a little bit scary. Yeah. And if you do have personal stories, it doesn't only have to be about murders. We really do want to hear every little thing. We were reading Reddit, of course, and in the car the other day, and the creepiest thing I've ever heard in my life was not even a murder, but it was a potential story about the Golden State Killer, yeah. because it's not, I haven't been able to verify it, where a witness claimed that they saw someone crawling up to somebody's front door in the middle of the night like that if or even or even btk waiting in somebody's closet for three days yeah that is terrifying i just think i just think that when you hear about these people first off uh, the Golden State Killer is probably the, the creepiest, most disturbing yeah. person that you will ever read about if yeah. you ever get a chance to read about him. I mean, BTK, to have that kind of patience, to have that kind of, like, I don't know, organization to just stay in a closet and just watch you and listen to you. Waiting for that moment. Waiting for the perfect time to strike. By the way, did you check? closets? I did. Okay, I, did. Just I, did. I always do. You know, it's just, or even when we heard about, who was it? I think it was Golden State Killer who would run down the hallway. Oh, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> like, like, oh my God. Like the fact that, like, like the, fact, that. the fact that no one has made a movie 
be about this guy is really surprising to me. I mean, like, you hear Zodiac, you hear BCK, you hear Dahmer and Gacy and, and all these other people, and they all have movies, but this guy has to be the worst of them all, the creepiest, oh my gosh, I most have, disturbing. Ugh. I have, like, chills and goosebumps even thinking about that. Like, just, oh, just, oh my God. Just imagining somebody running down the hallway trying to get your attention. It's yeah. just like, ugh, It's probably the number one reason why I still feel comfortable with our son sleeping in the bed with us most nights. <laughs> because of stuff like that. I mean, you're always afraid of something. Like, people are always scared of something. Like, people watch horror movies and, and they love it. I, I particularly am not a huge fan of horror I films. Do. But, you know, other people are, and that's fine, and yeah, people I, like to be scared. Yeah, but I can watch an Annabelle and be okay. Like, I can watch Annabelle and go to sleep at night. You know because I'm not concerned about a Raggedy Ann doll coming into my bed. However, when you tell me that a known serial killer was known to run up and down the hallway of their victims' houses, he set up everything he needed to set up and then ran up and down the hallway to get people, the prospective victims attention. It's just, to me, it always like, like makes me laugh in like certain like horror films where like, like the person's in the house and they hear a noise and they're like, hello, yeah, no. is someone there? Like who in their right mind would do that? Like, honestly, like who would do that? No one would do that. No one, what do you expect the killer to say? Like, oh, it's just me, the killer. I'm just yeah. setting up some plastic you know, like, on the floor over here. Like, was that in, don't uh, mind me. In Scary Movie, where, where she's on the phone and she's like, it's the killer. And, he, and he's like hiding behind the curtain and his feet are hanging out. He's like, no, no, it's not me. Not me. <laughs> like, hello? Oh, it's just me. It's just me, the killer. Like, who, like, like no one would say that. Like, no one. I'm sorry, any rational person who's ever watched a horror film or listened to any kind of true crime podcast or movie would automatically, they hear a noise in their house, they're on the phone to 911, and they are leaving. Like, no, not even. That's like yesterday, you were at work, and it's the middle of the day, and me and Aunt Denise, I'll cut that out, I Me and our son are in the house and I hear the doorbell ringing and when I mean ringing I mean somebody had placed their finger on it to where it was just non-stop ringing like ding 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 and what did I do I turned off the tv in the living room I grabbed our son I walked to the room and I closed the door and locked it and had 911 ready to be dialed just in case somebody came upstairs to the door like um no I'm not playing no thanks. There's no reason for you to be ringing the doorbell like that. Absolutely not. That's just... That's really scary. And that's happened before, in the middle of the night. Yeah. And we called the cops, and surprise, surprise, the cops never came. We're still waiting for the cops to show up. Yeah. That was only months ago, but yeah, whatever. Right? So... They're busy. They're busy. We're documenting this on this podcast, just in case. Listen, we called the cops. They're on their way. Onto the cases. <laughs> we don't have the copyrights in that song. Nope, that's why I stopped before the end. 
Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so, um, this is a case that I kind of just stumbled upon recently. Uh, I did some research on it, some fairly quick research, it's not like a ton of stuff, but it's, it's really interesting because, for two reasons, one, there was never a motive for the crime, and two, it's still unsolved to this day, and to me that just, the reason it's unsolved is what irritates me the most. Um, so. This is the case, uh, her name is Suzanne Joven, um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, she was a German-American who was uh, attending Yale University. Uh, this was actually in 1998 when this happened. So, so on the night of December 4th, 1998, the body of 21-year-old uh, Suzanne Joven was found on the sidewalk uh, right off the of campus of Yale University. Um, it was actually 1.9 miles away from the campus, so it wasn't, the interesting thing is why she was there. Um, she was actually stabbed 17 times in the back of the head or neck, but only from the forensic uh, pathologist when they did the autopsy, only one of the stab wounds was fatal. So to me that just shows overkill. overkill. Yeah, yeah I mean. It's a very, very personal crime. Anybody who's watched enough, you know, true crime, anything, would kind of figure out that that is most likely somebody she knew. Or, or anger. Or, yeah, somebody related. who was, yeah, somebody, somebody who, who was, ang up yeah, somebody anger. who was angry at her, specifically. Um, so, at 440, uh, 4.14 that day, um, she had dropped off her senior essay, and she was going to Trinity Lutheran Church to begin preparations for a pizza party for an organization that she volunteered with called uh, Best Buddies. Uh, it brings students and adults with learning disabilities together. So she was actually a good person. She was doing things, she was volunteering, she was, you know, finishing up school. So she had a lot of things going for her at this point. Um, she stayed up, uh, she stayed late to clean up and her and another student uh, drove back to campus um, in a car that they borrowed from the school. Um, she returned to the parking lot which is two blocks away from her dorm which also happened to be right above a police substation. So that's very interesting also. So the timeline of the events which is very very interesting uh, when you first read it. Um, so at around 8.50, um, some of her friends actually came to her window because she was on the second floor and they asked her to go to a movie with them. So unfortunately she declined and she said, I have some schoolwork left to do, so she stayed inside. At eight, uh, 9.02, uh, she logged onto her Yale school email account and she spoke to another friend in German, it was translated, that she was going to drop off some books for her and in her lobby, but she had to meet uh, an unidentified person who had borrowed the books from her. Hmm. That person has never been identified, so we don't know who that person is. There was no emails, there's no trace. Nothing, nothing. And here's the other part of it. 
at 9.10, after everything like that, she logs off the computer. And it's also unknown if she actually made any phone calls from the dorm, because in Yale University, those calls are not traced. So it's kind of like almost like a closed network. Like, no one can know who she called or if she called at all. So she did leave the dorm. Um, so at around 9.22, she ran into another classmate. His name is Peter Stein. Uh, they had about a two to three minute conversation. And he was quoted later on uh, as saying that she did not mention any plans to do anything after or before and that she was very, very tired of just looking to get a lot of sleep. She was looking to go back to her dorms, get some sleep. So, she was actually last seen uh, between 9.25 and 9.30 by another student, separate student, who was walking north um, through campus um, after attending a hockey game. So, at 9.51 p.m., she was found, uh, there was a 911 call by a woman, and she was found on the side of the road 1.9 miles away from campus. So in 30 minutes, she made it from campus to this spot where she was found murdered. Now, at the time, she was actually still alive, and she died later died at the hospital, and she was pronounced dead about 10.30. Sounds like to me either a either a she got into a vehicle with someone that she knew who maybe told her, oh I'll drop you off at the other dorm to drop off the book or you know something like that, or she got into a car like maybe of somebody she didn't know or somebody pulled her into a car of somebody that she didn't know um, to end up that far away in 30 minutes and have had an attack happen in that time. Right. That's definitely a vehicle was involved in that. Yeah, so there was actually some witnesses that said that there was a tan or brown van near the area. Windowless, I bet. Yeah, most likely. And there was also a man in his 20s or 30s um, running at high speed away from the scene. That man was never identified either. He was just, <laughs> he was just running around, running the street. Um, he was never found. He was never identified either. And the police never followed up. Now, there were a couple things also about this case. Um, there was DNA found okay. at the scene. There was DNA under her fingernails. If anybody knows anything, means that there was some kind of a fight. She fought back scratched him there was some kind of fingernail you know scrapings under her nails um there was also fingerprints her fingerprints and a partial palm print found on a fresca bottle which is found in the bushes right next to her body and curious thing about that was is that there was only one store that sold that fresca bottle which was two blocks away from her dorm the only place that sold it and this is the thing and we've talked about this before where police and I'm not trying to knock police officers I don't want to do that their job is very difficult and it's a very hard job to do um, 
but there's some times where they don't follow all the evidence. What happens is that they there was surveillance footage from the store that was never followed up on. Of course. And the DNA, her DNA was never ran through the DNA on her fingernails wasn't run. Because that department, the Yale Police Department, the, the New Haven Police Department had a backlog of over 12,000 kits and it just, it never happened. But there was a task force, um, a letter was sent to the, uh, the governor, I'm sorry, the governor at the time, um, and he tasked, and he brought a task force to try to see if he can, they can get to solve the case. But as of now, um, the case is still unsolved. So yeah, so as of right now, it still seems that it's still an unsolved case. So that's why I thought it was really interesting just to know like the overkill that it comes with. You know, 17 stab wounds, that's, that's harsh. That's somebody who's a lot of rage, a lot of rage. Okay, um, so my case is a little bit different. Um, it is a very interesting case that has some mystical properties to it, so to speak. Mm, intriguing. Yeah. So, Kathy Hobbs almost always spoke of feelings or premonitions that she would never live to be the age 16. Her family moved to Las Vegas in order to help her get her mind off of these fears and seemed to adjust very well until her 16th birthday approached. Kathy once again began to fear that she was going to die. She spent all of her time in her room becoming borderline agoraphobic. On the morning of her 16th birthday, however, she was surprised that she was still alive. She seemed to have overcome the fear and began living a more normal teenage life. She started to spend time with her friends and developed an interest in beauty products and had started pr pursuing a career as a beautician and she even planned to open her own hair salon called Cat's Cuts. However, on the night of July 23rd, 1987, at 11pm, she told her mother Vivian that she was going to be taking a quick trip to the nearby supermarket to purchase a book to read. Her mother believed that she would walk to the store with friends in their apartment complex as she normally did this even at that time of night however none of the friends were around that night so kathy went alone at around 3 a.m vivian the mother woke up from a sleep saying that she had felt like she was hit on the head and afterwards she claimed that she had a very peaceful feeling that came over her as if something was over at the time, she didn't understand the meaning of the experience. And the next morning, Vivian discovered that her daughter's bed was empty and had not been slept in. She soon contacted the police and an extensive search began. It was feared that Kathy had been abducted. So the local media publicized her disappearance and volunteer organizations were mobilized to search for her. The supermarket employee who was later questioned by police said he sold Kathy a book and she left. Nothing at the time seemed out of the ordinary. Store receipts confirmed that someone purchased a paperback novel at 11.17 p.m. on the night of her disappearance, but authorities could not determine where she went from there. They also were unable to find any witnesses to the abduction despite the area being very populated. 
nine days later. Nine days later, on August 1st, a geologist looking for rock crystals discovered Kathy's body in a remote field near Lake Mead, about an hour's drive from Las Vegas. Investigators found tire prints at the scene that showed the vehicle had come in, turned around, and back out. Basically like uh, a circle, a U-turn. Um, two rocks were found near her body that were covered in blood. The blood was analyzed and it was determined that the blood stains matched Kathy's blood type. The coroner determined that she had died from repeated blows to the head. Which if wow. you think back, her mother woke up that night at 3 a.m. saying that she felt she had been hit in the head. This is before the body had been found. Wow. And that a little while later she felt a peace come over her that it was over. Very interesting. To me, sounds like a connection that was there and the mother was able to feel that moment. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You hear parents talk about they have this connection with their children yeah. and they can almost feel like when they're in pain or when something happens to them or they feel sad or angry, yeah. like they just know. And this is even deeper in a sense because you know she felt her get hit yeah. And then possibly she felt her die. Yeah. Which also, if you pair that with the fact that almost her whole life, Kathy had been having premonitions that she wasn't going to live past 16, is it, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting to think about how she could have pinpointed something so specific. So did they ever find out? Uh, Kathy's premonitions were almost completely accurate. Although she lived to the age of 16, she had been killed just three months after her 16th birthday. After her death, her family found letters that she had written to them. The letters were all dated one month before her 16th birthday. She talked about how much she loved her family and didn't want them to be upset about her death. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, you write letters a month before your mm -hmm. death and then basically say goodbye and don't be sad yeah by her death so maybe somebody she knew i don't know but like to kill somebody, but this had been going on for most of her life yeah but even if if she sent this letter and it had to be somebody she knew because but if it was somebody she knew why kill her so brutally but wait on october 24th Exactly three months after Kathy vanished, an answering machine at the Las Vegas Police Department recorded a call from an anonymous informant who claimed to have witnessed her abduction. He gave the correct location of where Kathy was last seen, along with an accurate description of what she was wearing that night. He claimed that he didn't contact the police sooner because he was out of town for several months. Authorities theorized that Kathy was abducted by one or two individuals somewhere between the store and her complex on the way back home. They believed that she was driven to the lake and killed the same night. The caller's story also seemed to verify their theory that they originally had. The caller gave a license plate number for the abductor's car. However, the caller did not leave his name or contact information. And when police checked the license plate number, they discovered that it didn't exist. And despite repeated appeals, the witness has never called back. So they never knew who the witness was. However, it sounds like giving a fake license plate to me, but knowing all the other uh, information correctly 
what she's wearing, where she was at, located. Sounds like someone is trying to throw off the case. And I mean, to this day, they still don't know who the caller was. Yeah, I mean, even how many times have we read that killers inject themselves into they the love, investigation? Yeah. That, that narcissistic, you know, trait of, I want to be involved, I want to mm-hmm. see from behind the scenes what the police are doing and and what the family is feeling yeah sick really sick yeah. so although the identi- unidentified caller never came forward kathy's case has since been solved authorities linked her murder to a serial killer named michael lee lockhart from toledo ohio in may of 1987 lockhart stole a blue 1986 toyota Celica and kept it until November 1987. Authorities believe that during this time he abducted and murdered Kathy. Blue fibers found at the crime scene matched fibers from the stolen vehicle. Credit card receipts also placed him in Vegas at the same time of the murder. Finally, when the investigators questioned him about Kathy's case, he virtually confessed to the crime. Lockhart was convicted for a series of murders in Texas, Indiana, Tennessee, and Florida, and was eventually executed in Texas on December 9, 1997. Since he had already been sentenced to death in four different states, Nevada never pursued per- prosecution for Kathy's case. I mean, if he basically confessed to the crime yeah. and he was executed, I mean, it's not on the books that he was convicted for her crime, but you know, you had to feel some kind of justice, you know, being served because he was he was killed. He yeah. had the death penalty. Yeah. So. And he must have given, even though there's no details of it, he must have given accurate details of either where she was located, what she was wearing, how she was killed, for the police to believe him and and closing the case has solved especially because we have heard many stories of killers or prison inmates or different kinds of people's confessing to crimes that later on was proven that they had nothing to do with those crimes yeah yeah and what is up with these serial killers and the three names i don't know actually i did hear a theory that said they identify them by the three names because if you have a name like john gacy uh, a common name, then other people may be getting harassed because they share the same name or a Ted Bundy, you know, but he didn't have Yeah. Well, I mean, some, some people go by their full name. Like they go by their first, middle and last name on their license, on all their documents. It's happened before that they use their full name. Yeah. So I think most of the time you hear these killers is because they just use their full so I just think that this has been a great episode. Been some really interesting cases. It's been really fun to research. Um, tune in next time. We're gonna have some really awesome stuff uh, coming up for you guys. Uh, thank you for continuing to listen. And again, hit us up on all our different places where you can. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at True Crime Day Podcast. Or you can email us directly at true cramp true true crime date podcast at gmail.com. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you continue to listen and being those armchair detectives. And remember to always check your closets and don't go in the hallway if somebody's running up and down. Bye. Have a good night, guys.